You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 74, The Age of Toussaint. Thanks for joining me. Before we get started, I'll remind you once again that you can listen to this and all future episodes ad-free by pledging at least $2 a month on Patreon.com. Anyway, I need to make a quick disclaimer before we dive in. This is not a typical episode. We are going to be talking about slavery. I believe it's important to get things right on this topic, and unfortunately, that involves some frank discussions of violence and human cruelty. This is a pretty disturbing subject, and I know a lot of you listen with your kids, or might simply appreciate a warning before we delve into something like this. The next few episodes are going to be more or less self-contained, so if you choose to skip them, you will be able to return to the main narrative without too much difficulty. This episode has been a long time coming. By the very nature of this project, I'm forced to leave a lot of things out. The biggest of these missing pieces is France's largest and formerly most profitable colony, the country we know as Haiti. For those of you who don't know, Haiti is a country in the Caribbean, occupying the western third of the island of Hispaniola, which is between Cuba and Jamaica to the west, and Puerto Rico to the east. It is about the same size as the state of Massachusetts or the country of Albania. Since European colonization, it has had many names. Santo Domingo in Spanish, Saint-Domingue in French, and San Domingo in English for some reason. But for the sake of simplicity, I'm going to call it by the traditional name, which has always been used by the people who actually live in the country, and is the name of the modern state. IT, or in English, Haiti. It's a word from Taino, the language of the original inhabitants of the island, meaning land of the high mountains, which, apologies to St. Dominic, I find a much more fitting name given the country's rugged terrain. I've had a hard time figuring out how to approach this story. It's too important to our story to ignore, and unquestionably intertwined with events in France. However, Haiti's struggles during this era were very much on their own track. There are some parallels with the French experience of this era, because France and Haiti were shaped by the same fundamental fact 
that in the 1790s, the French monarchy lost its ability to rule, creating a vacuum which was filled by new political actors. But Haiti and France are very different places, separated by an ocean of thousands of miles, and after the outbreak of the War of the First Coalition, also separated by the Royal Navy blockade. Events in Haiti played out according to Haitian conditions and Haitian society. The culture of the European colonists was just one of many influences on the colony. There's really no way to do justice to Haiti's side of the story without going all the way back to the mid-18th century and telling it with the same level of detail we've devoted to France. Obviously, that's not really feasible. So I've been struggling to find an angle of attack, some way to condense the story down to only a few episodes of content while still keeping it coherent. Then it occurred to me, we already have a model for that. After all, that's the premise of this whole show, going through an entire era through the lens of one man's biography. So I thought, why not do the same thing on a smaller scale to tell the story of Haiti's long, bloody road to independence? On or around May 1st, 1740, a boy was born at the Breda Plantation, one of the many sugar-producing enterprises in Haiti's fertile northern plain. His parents named him Toussaint. He was small and sickly. People on the plantation called him Fatras Baton, meaning clumsy stick. None of them could have imagined that this frail young man would eventually rise to lead the whole country. From an early age, that awkwardness disappeared as soon as Toussaint mounted a horse. As an adult, he would be regarded as one of the best horsemen on the island. Toussaint was a studious boy, soaking up European knowledge from friendly Jesuit priests and traditional West African medicine from herbalists on the plantation. Almost everyone who came to know the young Toussaint recognized that he was an exceptional person. He was intelligent, curious, and good with people. Despite his lowly status in the social hierarchy, he carried himself with dignity. Perhaps this was a family legacy. It was widely known that his ancestors had been nobility back in Africa, and so many on the Breda plantation treated Toussaint's family with deference and respect. Toussaint had a lot going for him, and in a normal society, he probably would have had a promising future. But Haitian society was not normal. Under the law, this eager, talented young man had almost no rights as an individual. He was closer in status to a pig or a cow than a human being. Legally speaking, Toussaint didn't even have a name. On official documents, he was simply known as Toussaint à Breda, or Toussaint at Breda, known only by his place of captivity. Like his mother and his father, and over a half million other Haitians, Toussaint was a slave. It's hard to talk about Toussaint's life in any detail without grappling with the grim realities of 18th century Haitian slavery. Directly or indirectly, slavery shaped almost every aspect of life in the colony. Obviously, Haitians who were actually enslaved were bound by the strict rules of this institution. But even for the free colonists, almost every aspect of life was shaped by the desire to protect and maintain slavery. During Toussaint's youth, perhaps as much as 90% of the population of Haiti was enslaved. 
As you might imagine, with numbers like that, the free population of Haiti constantly worried about uprisings, and they resorted to violence and terror to keep the enslaved population in check. They had good reason to fear retribution from the slaves. In the name of order and commerce, unspeakable crimes were routinely visited upon that bottom 90% of society. Torture, rape, and even murder were part of the system, even enshrined in law under certain circumstances. A society in which less than 10% of the population holds 90% of the population under brutal domination is not a healthy one. In French Haiti, fear and cruelty were always hanging in the air, and the specter of violence was always just around the corner. Attempts had been made to reform the brutal slave system in France's colonies, but they had never amounted to much. Slave-owning interests and their allies were powerful enough to defang any reform program before it became law, and then undermine its enforcement in the colonial courts. In effect, these so-called reforms did little more than codify and legitimize the brutal treatment of enslaved Haitians, while proving almost totally ineffective at limiting abuses. And so, during Toussaint's youth, life was cheap in Haiti, just as it had been for over a century of French colonization. According to one estimate, the average enslaved sugar worker could only expect to survive around four years on average. On the Breda plantation, where Toussaint grew up, the life expectancy of an enslaved adult was just 37. And I stress, that's the life expectancy for adults. It doesn't take into account infant or childhood mortality, which were quite high. For a whole variety of reasons, the popular image of New World slavery is basically of life on a large cotton plantation in the southern U.S. on the eve of the American Civil War. While it's true that there were a lot of commonalities among all the slaveholding societies of the Americas, there were a lot of differences as well. We're talking about different cultures and legal systems, and different local conditions, the experiences of millions of people over the course of centuries. Generally speaking, the Haitian experience of slavery was actually much worse than the stereotypical image of plantation life you might have from popular culture or high school history. American slavery was quite deadly, but death was never really an accepted part of the system in the U.S. the way it was in Haiti. Generally speaking, it was never common practice to work slaves to death in America. In the cruel economics of plantation management, slaves were too big of a capital investment to throw them away so easily. This was not so in 18th century Haiti, where a steady stream of slave ships from Africa ensured a constant supply of cheap, captive labor. Plantation owners in Haiti could afford to throw lives away in the cane fields, and so they did. The majority of people who were kidnapped in West Africa by slave traders bound for Haiti were dead within a few years, either on the arduous passage across the Atlantic or in the cane fields shortly after arrival. Looking at that death rate, Haitian slavery is perhaps closer to a World War II Nazi slave labor camp 
than an 1850s American cotton plantation. That's something to keep in mind when we talk about the slave rebellion. Many of the participants knew they and their families were likely to die a pointless and horrible death in the very near future if their uprising failed and slavery was restored. It can be hard to wrap your head around the fact that this cruel and inhuman system not only came into being, but was actually codified and even encouraged by the most powerful governments in the world. In the end, it was an economic calculation. We've discussed in past episodes how, in this era, international trade was almost like the tech industry today, a tremendous source of profit and prestige with strategic implications. European governments were almost fanatical in their desire to encourage this sector of their economies. Nothing in the world was quite as profitable or quite as likely to stimulate commerce as a colony which produced some kind of cash crop which was in demand in Europe. And, in the 18th century, sugar was the undisputed king of these cash crops. According to one estimate, Haiti was responsible for 10% of all of France's international commerce. Perhaps as many as one out of every 12 jobs in France was connected to the colonial trade. And then there was the bread and circuses factor. Many Europeans had come to expect regular access to colonial goods. If little everyday luxuries like sugar, coffee, chocolate, and rum suddenly became unavailable or unaffordable, there would surely be discontent, and at least some people would surely blame the government. The men who profited from this trade built enormous fortunes and attained huge political and social influence. A good portion of this wealth and influence was spent in Europe, protecting the institution of slavery. These wealthy New World planters were so effective at maintaining a united front to protect their interests that they've been referred to as the first modern political lobby. They were great patrons of what we today would call scientific racism, theories which would prove persistent and troublesome for centuries to come. Any analysis of Haitian society before the revolution tends to focus on the planters and the enslaved sugar workers. And for good reason. The planters were some of the richest and most powerful people on the planet. They called all the shots in Haiti. And... They were even able to shape the colonial agenda in Paris to a great degree. The sugar workers were the single biggest segment of the population, who did the dirty work in the industry which made the colony viable. But Haiti wasn't a pure binary between black and white, slave and free, haves and have-nots. It was a very complex society. True, it was a very unequal society, with almost unbelievable wealth and power at the top, and deplorable cruelty and destitution at the bottom. But there were important gradations between those extremes, and other factors that shaped people's identities. For starters, there was actually a third racial category between black and white, the gens de couleur, or people of color in English. This term had a different meaning in 18th century Haiti. Today, we would call them mixed race. 
They were originally the offspring of French men and African women, but over the generations, they intermarried amongst themselves, and by Toussaint's time, they had actually become a distinct community of their own. Most of them were not enslaved, and they were not considered black. This is an important distinction from the American brand of slavery, with its infamous one-drop rule, which dictated that any person with even one African ancestor be labeled black. This is pretty much an American peculiarity. Race was much more fluid in the rest of the New World. They didn't enjoy the same rights as white people, but many mixed-race Haitians were quite wealthy. Some of the earliest French planters had taken African wives, and then passed down their estates to their mixed-race sons, creating a small but very influential circle of mixed-race oligarchs who dominated this community, much in the same way the white planters dominated the white community. Their status sometimes drew ire from poor whites in the colony, who resented the fact that men with African blood were able to flout the color barrier, live lives of luxury, and wield real power and influence in the colony, while poor whites struggled to make ends meet. Of course, these mixed-race planters were exceptions, not the norm. There were thousands of mixed-race people in Haiti, and most of them lived ordinary lives, typically in large towns and cities, working as tradesmen, merchants, or skilled workers. They had it much better than most of the enslaved population, but still felt the sting of legal apartheid and social discrimination. On the eve of the Haitian Revolution, there were somewhere around 20,000 mixed-race people in the colony, only around 2% of the population, but they had outsized influence because some of them were so wealthy, and, unlike the enslaved people, they had personal autonomy and some degree of legal rights. It's also important to note that unlike most of the free population, mixed-race Haitians viewed themselves as being rooted in the New World. They were sons and daughters of the soil, and Haiti was their home. By contrast, for most whites in the colony, home was still somewhere in France. Even if they had lived in Haiti for decades, it was simply a place to get rich or earn a living. Speaking of the white population, they were far from unified. They slightly outnumbered the mixed-race population. There were probably around 25,000 whites in the colony on the eve of the revolution. There was a stark social divide between the planters and their immediate circle and everyone else. The lucky few at the very top of the hierarchy were referred to as the big whites, and everyone else as small whites. Both terms sound a bit less ridiculous in French. These so-called small whites were a bit of an oddity. In racial terms, they were the elite of the elite of Haitian society. The right to full legal personhood was a rare and precious thing in Haiti. In legal terms, every white person in the colony had been born into a very exclusive aristocracy. However, many of them were quite poor and led difficult, dangerous lives. There was hard work to be done in the colonies that could not be entrusted to an enslaved person. The small whites filled this gap. They were soldiers, sailors, shopkeepers, clerks, tradesmen, and of course, overseers and slave drivers. Some of them were just normal people who had left Europe to find a fresh start, or found themselves in Haiti by chance. 
but there were a lot of shady characters as well. Ambitious and unscrupulous people who heard it was easier to climb the social ladder out in the colonies. Or greedy people who heard it was a good place to make an easy fortune. To some Europeans who came to Haiti, the brutal social structure was actually a selling point. Even if you were a nobody in France, the second you got off the boat in Haiti, your white skin automatically placed you in roughly the upper 3% of society. That had a powerful appeal to anyone who valued their own status over the lives of their fellow human beings. The ruthless pursuit of profit, which was the governing ethos of colonial Haitian society, was also a selling point. A place where torture and murder were tolerated in the name of economic necessity was a perfect land of opportunity for the type of person who was willing to set aside his scruples for a chance at a fortune. But Haiti was no paradise for the small whites. For one thing, they were very susceptible to tropical disease, which repeatedly tore through the population of the colony. For most of Haiti's small whites, the dream of winning wealth and status ended with sudden agony, delirious and vomiting blood in a yellow fever quarantine ward. All this is to say the small white population of Haiti were a sullen lot who included more than their share of villains. I try to stay objective and not generalize too much about the people we talk about on this show, but sometimes there's no way around it. We're talking about thousands of people here, each with their own character and their own story, but taken in aggregate as a group, they were a pretty nasty bunch driven by greed, resentful of anyone above them, and contemptuous of anyone below them. And before anyone says anything, yes, maybe it's a bit ironic for a white American to say so. So, that brings us to Haiti's vast black majority. They are sometimes portrayed as an undifferentiated mass. That's certainly how they were treated under colonial law, but we're talking about well over half a million people here there was a huge range of experiences. The archetypal image of Haitian slavery is someone kidnapped from Africa working in the cane fields. And while that was the single largest demographic of black Haitians, they were just one segment of the population. A little over half of the black population were bosals, or people born in Africa. The remaining 40% or so were born in the New World, and called Creoles. Toussaint was a pretty typical black Creole in that both of his parents were born in Africa, and he had a strong connection to his African roots. He was a master of traditional African herbal medicine, and a fluent speaker of Fon, his parents' native language, which is still spoken today in Benin and western Nigeria. Toussaint wasn't unique in this. Black Haitians were generally pretty aware of their African roots, Ethnic or political affiliations from the old country often still carried weight in Haiti. Many black Haitians maintained elements of their ancestral cultures and ways of life whenever possible. That was fortunate for Toussaint because it meant his status as son of a West African nobleman meant something, at least to his fellow black Haitians. Toussaint never worked in the cane fields. Even within the enslaved population, there was a hierarchy. Toussaint was born near the top and only rose higher. The worst job in Haiti was, almost without question, 
working in the sugarcane fields. Long days of hard physical labor, wading through a tropical swamp, full of all kinds of dangerous creatures, everything from boa constrictors and caimans to malaria mosquitoes. Every cane field was also full of half-exhausted workers swinging machetes, plenty of opportunities for accidents. Once the cane was harvested, the refining process was almost as dangerous. There were a lot of one-armed slaves in Haiti, who had let a finger get too close to a sugar mill and had the whole limb sucked in before anyone could stop the machinery. Life was a bit better on the tobacco and coffee plantations. The work was brutally hard, but the workers at least stood a decent chance of surviving. This was a society in which nine out of every ten people was enslaved. When you try to wrap your head around that reality, it immediately becomes obvious that slaves did all sorts of work in Haiti, not just in the fields. There were enslaved longshoremen, teamsters, cooks, waiters, household servants, lumberjacks, and ranch hands. A Haitian-born butler and an African-born coffee worker would have very different lives. The enslaved population of Haiti came from diverse backgrounds, and their experiences of slavery came in almost endless variety. But there were commonalities to these experiences. The lack of legal personhood and personal autonomy presented a whole host of challenges, both internal and external. And every slave in Haiti, regardless of their station, had to worry about arbitrary violence. As I've said, even torture and murder were more or less accepted parts of this system. Sexual assault was pervasive as well, and, believe it or not, was actually quasi-legal under certain circumstances. The brutal conditions of slavery and the legal discrimination against people of African descent did have one benefit for the black population of Haiti. They were the only group in the colony with something approaching a universal experience. A powerful negative experience shared by a large group of people can be a source of unity and even create new communities where none existed before. During Toussaint's youth, in the late 1740s and 50s, this nascent black Haitian identity was struggling to take form. Some of this process was religious. The spiritual practices we today call voodoo were just beginning to emerge. Finding some political expression for this emerging consciousness was a much more daunting task. Slaves were legal non-persons, and thus not permitted to take part in politics. And even if they had been, the only salient issue that really affected all black Haitians was their shared condition of slavery and discrimination, and any black person who dared to criticize either was dealt with very harshly. Plenty of people did dare to resist in their own ways. They stole from their masters, slowed down their work, Sometimes they even went on strike, although doing so risked brutal penalties. The boldest, or luckiest, ran away and formed free black communities in the rugged interior, dodging the army and the militia, and eking out an existence through jungle agriculture and banditry. These people were known as maroons, 
and by Toussaint's teenage years, there were probably thousands of them scattered around Haiti, although we don't know for sure. So there was plenty of resistance, but it was expressed only in the actions of a few brave individuals or small groups. There was no organization or leadership to coordinate these actions. There wasn't even a communications network through which they could contact one another. However, despite the incredible danger and difficulty involved in the task, in the late 1740s, someone began to build such an organization and put himself forward as such a leader. This man would turn out to be a pivotal figure in Haitian history, but we don't actually know very much about him. His name was Macandal. He was a Bosal, born in Africa, probably somewhere in northern West Africa, on the southern edge of the Sahara Desert. But that's not much more than a guess. We know he was relatively well-educated. He was a Muslim, and seems to have spoke Arabic as well as his native African tongue, whatever that might have been. Perhaps at some point in his youth he'd had ambitions of becoming a Muslim cleric or holy man. But all his dreams and plans for the future went out the window when, as a young man, he was kidnapped and enslaved. Makandal's captors brought him to Haiti, where he was put to work in the cane fields. On top of all the other crimes of slavery, I can't help but be struck by the massive waste of human potential. Makandal was a tremendously capable person, with a relatively good education for this era, but his so-called masters put him to work doing dull menial labor that was certain to shorten his life. A society with more respect for Makandal's humanity and individuality could have made good use of his talents. Before long, Makandal suffered one of the most common fates of a cane worker, the loss of an arm. We don't know if it was a careless swing of a machete or a machine accident at the mill, but surely this must have felt like rock bottom. Makandal had been stolen away from his home, robbed of his future, treated like an animal, and now they had taken one of his limbs. Many people in Makandal's situation chose death. Suicide was quite common in colonial Haiti. But Makandal chose a different path. Once he regained his health, he ran away to the jungle and joined a band of maroons. Makandal had much grander ambitions than securing his own personal freedom. He had a vision of a new Haiti, freed from slavery, independent of European influence, and ruled by its black majority. Perhaps he wasn't the first to articulate this idea, but he was the first to come up with a real plan and begin the impossible task of putting it into action. Once he had established himself as a leader among his own maroon community, he began traveling around the colony, in secret, making contacts, not only with other maroon groups, but also with the rural plantation slaves. He even visited the cities and towns, and made inroads among the relatively privileged household slaves and urban black communities. The exact nature of Makandal's organization remains a mystery, but it seems to have been some kind of revolutionary secret society, not unlike the American Sons of Liberty or the Italian Carbonari. Secret societies are common in many West African cultures, so this would have been a familiar method of organization for many black Haitians. 
For six years, Makandal traveled around Haiti in secret, building this organization, and building his own reputation as a political and spiritual leader. He seemed to be everywhere at once, always ready to emerge from the shadows and disappear just as quickly. Makandal's most fervent followers came to believe he had supernatural abilities. The details of Makandal's plan remain mysterious, but from what we can tell, on some appointed day, all the members of the organization were to poison their masters. Then, in the ensuing chaos, they would launch an uprising to seize control of the island and expel the remaining whites. As you might imagine, it ultimately proved impossible to keep this spectacular operation secret. Eventually, someone talked. The colonial authorities got wind of what was going on and responded with overwhelming brutality. Thousands were detained and tortured as the army and the militia ripped through the black population of the colony looking for Makandal and his co-conspirators. After a long, ruthless search, the authorities were eventually able to bring him in. He was taken to the largest city in the colony, Cap Francais, where he was interrogated by the governor's men for days, before being burned at the stake in front of a massive crowd. Some witnesses claimed Makandal's soul left his body before the execution, that the flames burned away nothing but an empty vessel, leaving Makandal's spirit free to haunt the colonial order. In a sense, they were right. Makandal ultimately failed, but his dream did not die. He had done something new, created a model for uniting the black population in violent opposition to slavery and European rule. That model needed a lot of refining before it could be made viable, but a rising generation of Haitians had learned valuable lessons from Makandal's defeat. One of that new generation of leaders had been standing in the square in Cap Francais, watching Makandal's execution, a skinny 15-year-old boy named Toussaint. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. I have to wonder if witnessing the gruesome death of Makandal had any impact on Toussaint's plans for the future. Much like Makandal, Toussaint did not accept the condition of slavery and resolved to find a way out. He believed, quote, I was born with the soul of a free man, end quote. Unlike Makandal, Toussaint did not choose the path of direct confrontation with the colonial order. Instead, he would play the inside track, operate within the law, and comply with the white authorities. At least for the time being. Fortunately for Toussaint, 
fate brought him into contact with someone with an insider's knowledge of colonial law, business, and politics, who was willing to teach him all he knew. This man was Antoine-Francois Bayon de Liberté, the lawyer and business manager of the Breda plantation, where Toussaint was enslaved. Given that Breda's actual owner lived in France, Monsieur Bayon was effectively the boss, legally empowered to speak and act for the real owner. It would be an exaggeration to say Bayon was well-liked. Operating a sugar plantation meant working people to death, ordering beatings, whippings, and sometimes even worse. However, the people of the Breda plantation did not hate him with the same intensity that many other black Haitians held for their white masters. He was seen as relatively fair and unprejudiced, even while he presided over a system that was anything but. Bayon recognized Toussaint's potential from an early age, and took him under his wing. By the time he was a young man, Toussaint was working as Bayon's coachman, or what we today would call chauffeur. Now that might sound like a menial job, and in some respects it was. Toussaint really did drive Monsieur Bayon's carriage around the colony and take care of the horses. However, in Haiti, the position of coachman had a special significance. The master's coachman was at the very top of the slave hierarchy. It was the job traditionally given to the most intelligent and reliable enslaved man on the plantation, because the coachman's duties went far beyond simply driving. Nobody else in the household would spend more time with the master. Despite the rigid racial hierarchy, the master and the coachman would have a lot of personal contact. If the master was away on business often, he might see his coachman more than his own family. Who else was by the master's side for every negotiation, business deal, or political meeting? Who was on hand to assist with any sensitive task related to such negotiations? Who among the master's inner circle had insights into the lives of the enslaved population? If, for instance, some dispute arose between the plantation overseers and the slaves, who could the master rely upon to act as a go-between who could be trusted by both sides, the coachman? You can see how such a humble occupation could serve vitally important functions behind the scenes. The position of coachman was one of the only places in Haitian society where the world of the big whites who ruled the colony intersected directly with the world of the enslaved blacks. The coachmen were some of the only enslaved Haitians with the privilege to see and interact with the world outside the plantation, and some of the only people in the entire colony of any color who were allowed to glimpse the inner workings of the big white elite. When the Haitian Revolution finally broke out, a majority of the black leadership were former coachmen, pretty remarkable given that there were probably only a few hundred in the entire colony. But who else from among the enslaved majority had the connections and the know-how to lead? I wonder how many of the planter elite who schooled their coachmen in business, politics, and diplomacy, imagined that they were training their replacements. Toussaint flourished in his role as Bayon's coachman, quickly becoming the lawyer's right-hand man. 
in his heyday, Toussaint will eventually play the role of charismatic leader quite well. But the true secret to his success was his skill as a conciliator and behind-the-scenes operator, much of which surely came from over two decades of experience working for Bayon in this capacity. The two men grew very close, and their relationship was clearly warm, despite the massive power differential between them. After the Haitian Revolution, the power dynamic will be flipped. Toussaint will be master of Haiti, and Bayon a poor refugee living in the United States. Toussaint gave the Bayon family generous financial support. Bayon sent his son back to Haiti to serve as Toussaint's personal aide-de-camp, and learned from Toussaint the same way Toussaint had once learned from Bayon. Bayon would later write that Toussaint was almost like a son to him. Perhaps that was true, but it's hard to tell what their relationship was really like. This kind of mentor-friend relationship between a white man and a black man was not supposed to exist in Haiti, and must have faced all kinds of complications. People often remark that Toussaint rose from nothing. In a certain sense, that's true. He was born into slavery, so low on the social ladder that he was not even considered a human being. But when you look at his life on the eve of the Haitian Revolution, he had achieved quite a lot. He'd already won an incredibly precious prize, his personal freedom. This was a rare feat in 18th century Haiti. Fewer than 1% of black Haitians were free, and many of them had been born into it rather than gaining it themselves. He was wealthy enough for his family to live in relative comfort, and was viewed as a productive, respectable member of society, to the degree to which that was possible for a black person. Thanks to the artificial limits imposed on his achievements by racial prejudice, he was still essentially a nobody in the grand scheme of things. But he had risen about as high as a black man born into slavery could. If the Haitian Revolution had never taken place, Toussaint Breda, as he was now known, probably wouldn't warrant much more than a footnote in some obscure scholarly history. But, given his origins and environment, his life before the revolution is quite impressive. I think that takes us to the momentous year 1789. The French Revolution was a shattering event in Haiti, just as it was in France. And as I hope I've demonstrated, the fault lines in Haiti were even sharper and more numerous than those in France. Haiti was a lot smaller than France so events were on a smaller scale, but in many ways the subsequent cataclysm was even more intense. The revolution quickly came to dominate Haitian politics, just as it did French politics. At the beginning, they were dominated by the same class who had dominated pre-revolutionary politics, the big whites. It might seem a bit strange to modern ears, imagining wealthy plantation owners raising the banner of revolution, joining forces with the downtrodden, the radicals, and the idealists, and mouthing subversive slogans like liberty or death. But many at the time saw no contradiction. The planters had a strange view of liberty one in which they would have unlimited rights to use their wealth and power to dominate others. In short, 
the planters wanted the liberty to deprive others of their liberty. When the big white revolutionaries complained about so-called royal tyranny, they were often talking about the royal government's attempts to reform the system of colonial slavery and stamp out the worst abuses. In hindsight, these reforms were ludicrously small and toothless, but many planters viewed them as outrageous assaults on property rights. In the early days of the revolution, many of them were angry enough to join in, hoist the tricolor flag, and oppose the king. Ironically, many of the small whites in the colony also supported the revolution, but for entirely different reasons. To them, the revolution was about opening up the political system and allowing average French men, and perhaps even women, to have their say. It was about destroying a system based on the old privileges of the few and replacing it with a new system built around the universal rights of the many. Of course, when these small white agitators talked about the many, they didn't actually mean the great majority of the Haitian population. All this talk of liberty, equality, and brotherhood had little impact on the bigoted racial attitudes which predominated among the small whites. They wanted a more egalitarian society among the white colonists, but only among the white colonists. Most of the mixed-race population supported the revolution as well. The wealthy mixed-race planters, who dominated this community, shared their financial interests and intellectual influences with the big whites. They too favored free trade, free markets, and a society that rewarded wealth and private enterprise. Of course, they also wanted to end the legal discrimination which had prevented them from participating fully in society. Many mixed-race Haitians saw how the revolution had created an opening for progressive new ideas and led people to question old hierarchies. And so, quite naturally, they hoped to put Haiti's racial caste system on the revolutionary reform agenda. And so, although Haiti was deeply divided, for a brief moment, these three mutually antagonistic classes of colonial society were united under the revolutionary tricolor. The early phases of the revolution in Haiti echoed events in France. There was a raucous revolutionary assembly, radical pamphlets, tricolor cockades, and impassioned public meetings. Jacobin clubs formed in the cities and large towns. In those early days, it was almost like the French Revolution in microcosm, played out before the backdrop of palm trees and sugar mills under the blazing tropical sun. And the influence went both ways. Back in France, colonial matters were a subject of intense debate. In keeping with the times, the big white planters formed a political club of their own, the Massiac Club, which operated like a lobbying organization working to influence the revolutionary legislature against reform and for local control of the colonies. The first real political conflict of the revolution started over representation. Everyone agreed Haiti should send delegates to the new National Assembly, but who should those delegates represent? The Big Whites and their supporters in the Masiak Club believed the honor should be reserved for white men of property. The wealthy mixed-race planters agreed on the property clause, but 
believed the selection process should be colorblind, in keeping with the progressive, universalist vision of the revolution. The two sides debated in public and worked behind the scenes to pressure decision-makers in Paris. As is so often the case in situations like these, the side with more money and influence won out. The Haitian delegation to the National Assembly would be all-white, composed entirely of wealthy big-white planters and their allies. Meanwhile, back in Haiti, the increasingly militant political environment led to power slipping away from the royal governor and his administration. The local revolutionary assemblies began to assert control over the colony. These assemblies were also whites-only, and they were dominated by the planters. It seemed the big whites had won, the reformers were defeated, and the revolution would proceed without disturbing the racial hierarchy in the colonies. Then, the assembly in Paris threw a spanner in the works, by passing the Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen, the very first article of which reads, quote, Men are born and remain free and equal in rights. Social distinctions can be founded only on the common good. End quote. Even as government policy tilted towards the big whites, the assembly was doubling down on the concept of full social and legal equality, without distinction of color. This inherent contradiction would have grave consequences for the colonies, particularly Haiti. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Still, the situation looked bad for the mixed-race population. The more radical white supremacist political leaders in the colony were talking about strengthening the legal color barrier, and even confiscation, that is, seizing any property owned by non-whites and redistributing it to the small white population of the island. With the mixed-race community totally shut out of the political system, they would be powerless to stop these proposals. This whites-only revolution could easily lead to the destruction of the entire community. There were those who refused to take this lying down. Their leader was Vincent Auger. Auger owned one of the largest coffee plantations in the world. He was probably the wealthiest member of the mixed-race community and one of the richest men in the entire colony of any color. Auger obtained financial support from British abolitionists, bought weapons, and secretly gathered an army of several hundred men. 
In October of 1790, Auger raised his standard and openly declared rebellion against the colonial government in defense of the rights of the mixed-race community. The local all-white National Guard was called out and were soundly defeated. Despite their initial success, it's hard to imagine this rebellion going very far. Even with the considerable wealth of Auger, the entire power of the colonial state was arrayed against them, and their base of support, the mixed-race population, was only a few thousand individuals scattered across the entire colony. Sure enough, after their defeat, the white colonists dispatched a larger force, which was able to scatter the small rebel army. Auger and other leaders escaped the final battle, but were eventually captured and brought back to Cap Francais in chains. As you might expect, Auger was sentenced to death, but the world was shocked by the method of execution chosen by the court, breaking on the wheel, a particularly barbaric form of punishment in which the executioner breaks all the bones in the body of the condemned person before finally ending their suffering. This had been a relatively common form of execution in the early modern period, but by the 18th century, it was widely considered to be a relic of less enlightened times. Even many who had not supported the rebellion felt it was wrong to torture a man to death just for standing up for his people's rights. The scandal caused by Auger's brutal execution gave new life to the cause of the mixed-race Haitians. Paradoxically, this failed rebellion had actually succeeded in advancing the cause. I think this is exactly what Auger had hoped for. A man of his education and ability surely must have known that a few hundred men would not be able to defeat the colonial authorities. But the white colonists had left him little choice but to make himself a martyr. He had made a terrible sacrifice for his people, but had succeeded in resurrecting their political hopes. Meanwhile, there was discord among the white population as well. Many of the most powerful white planters wanted something approaching independence, basically full autonomy in the colony's domestic affairs, and even the right to set their own trade policy. But this would be a hard sell back in France. Essentially, it would leave the Republic on the hook for Haiti's defense, while the local colonial elite would reap all the benefits. All this talk of independence certainly did not appeal to the royal governor. Remember, this was late 1790. King Louis XVI was still theoretically in charge of the country, ruling alongside the revolutionary legislature as a constitutional monarch. The governor could surely feel the political terrain shifting beneath his feet. The authority of the king, and by extension his own authority on Haiti, might not be respected much longer. But for the moment, he was still theoretically in charge, and he would not stand by and allow the colony to drift away from France. The regular troops on the island still answered to him, and so he ordered the army to dissolve the colonial assembly. The white colonists responded by agitating among the troops. The units which shut down the legislature were recent arrivals from France, and they were fully steeped in the revolutionary spirit currently sweeping the country. 
it was easy for these small white firebrands to play on anti-royalist feelings among the men and turn them against the governor. The troops mutinied and took control of the colony's capital, Port-au-Prince, and the big whites prepared for elections to a new assembly, daring the governor to try to stop them. The pressure was mounting. The taboo against the use of armed force had already been broken by Auger, and the political momentum in Haiti seemed to be moving towards violent confrontation. Then, just at this highly sensitive moment, a bombshell arrived in the news from France. In the wake of Vincent Auger's brutal execution, the revolutionary legislature in Paris had reopened the debate on the status of the colonies. Supporters of colonial reform found their arguments suddenly gaining traction. It seems Auger's rebellion had made people see the issue in a different light. The legislature passed a resolution affirming that the Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen applied fully in all French territory, including the colonies. And they specifically clarified that any mixed-race person born to free parents was a French citizen. Auger's sacrifice had not been in vain. The mixed-race population of Haiti had won the political battle in Paris, but the struggle was not over. The white colonists had a long history of defying reforms from the capital, and they had no intention of allowing this declaration to actually be enforced. They continued with their plans to hold an election with an all-white electorate. Mixed-race Haitians were outraged. They organized a provisional assembly of their own, composed of the most prominent members of their community, which prepared a strongly worded manifesto, demanding to be included in the election, as they were entitled to be under French law. The governor was the only person in the colony who really had the power to answer these demands. He still controlled the majority of the regular soldiers in the colony. He could have used them to threaten the big whites. However, after their last confrontation went so poorly, it seems the governor didn't have the stomach to take them on again. He refused to intervene, even though the law was clearly on the side of the mixed-race colonists. And so, despite their surprise political victory, the mixed-race community was once again out of options. Left with no choice but surrender or resistance, they chose resistance. The mixed-race assembly voted to take up arms and fight for their rights, just as Auger had done months earlier. Things were falling apart in Haiti. The country had entered the preliminary stages of civil war. As we know, France itself would soon follow. If you're keeping track, there are now three armed factions in the colony, the royal governor and the remains of his administration, which included much of the regular army garrison, the prominent mixed-race colonists, who were forming a movement to fight for their community's rights, and the white colonists, who controlled the National Guard and the troops occupying the capital. And of course, it's worth remembering that the white colonists were not a unified camp, but a shaky coalition between the big whites and the small whites, who had very different goals, and were united only by their belief in white supremacy. 
As you may have noticed, we're missing a big part of the picture here. The majority of Haitians. The enslaved black people who made up over 90% of the population. Who were represented by none of these competing factions, and whose lives and interests were completely absent from all of these political machinations. You might think the mixed-race leadership would have felt some kinship with the enslaved population, but they didn't share much more than their African blood. Almost all of the prominent members of this new mixed-race political movement were slave owners, and although some may have been open to reform, none were interested in abolition. A lot of Haitian politics was about the enslaved population, keeping them working, maintaining the existence of the institution, guarding against rebellions, and ensuring the supply of newly kidnapped slaves from Africa. However, the free colonists were very careful to prevent them from ever participating in politics in any way. In fact, this was one of the great taboos of Haitian colonial life. This became even more intense during the Revolution. It was obvious to anyone that all this talk of freedom, equality, and the universal brotherhood of all men did not mesh well with the institution of slavery, to say the least. The colonial authorities tried to censor all news from France, and actually made it a crime to disseminate newspapers and political literature among the enslaved population. Nobody wanted the slaves to get the idea that these universal principles of the revolution actually applied universally. This was futile to the point of absurdity. Just try to imagine keeping events this momentous secret from 90% of the population. News spread among enslaved Haitians almost as quickly as it did among the free colonists. Most of these people only had a very hazy idea of what Europe was actually like. And of course, the vast majority of them lacked the experience to really engage with the ideological and philosophical concepts that were at play in France. But many of the people in France engaged in these battles didn't really understand them either. The basic facts of the revolution were not difficult to comprehend. Those at the bottom had risen up to demand their rights, and they had won. They had defied the king, changed their government, and forced society to reform. You don't need to read Adam Smith or be able to debate the finer points of Rousseau to be inspired by that example. This was true all over the world, from the United States to the Rio de la Plata, and from Ireland to Poland, there were a lot of people in the Western world who were taken with the spirit of the French Revolution, without necessarily having any knowledge of the specific political and intellectual debates raging inside France. Enslaved Haitians were no different. Furthermore, on a purely practical level, the enslaved population could see that the free colonists were more divided and distracted than ever. Slave owners had taken up arms to fight other slave owners. White men had fought against other white men. Nothing like this had ever happened before in anyone's living memory. The colonial order had never looked so weak and vulnerable. The spirit of Macandal still haunted the colony, either literally or metaphorically, depending on your perspective. 
His dream of a free and sovereign black community in Haiti lived on, kept alive by the Maroons and in the hearts of his people. This dream mingled with the news and new ideas from France. People started thinking, then they started talking, then they started organizing. The groundwork for what we now call the Haitian Revolution was being laid. We know frustratingly little about this phase of events. By necessity, all this organizing work was carried out under strict secrecy. Remember, the last time this had been tried, everything fell apart when someone talked. It was a difficult task. The white colonists understood the utility of keeping slave communities isolated from one another. They monitored communications between them, with the express purpose of preventing this type of organizing. The word was mostly spread at night, when it was easier for slaves to slip away from the plantation for a few hours and go about their business unsupervised. And so, with time, the idea became a conspiracy. High-ranking members of the conspiracy traveled from plantation to plantation and town to town, preaching the gospel of liberation. Historians differ on the question of what Toussaint was doing during this period. Outwardly, his life did not change very much. He was splitting his time between Cap Francais, the colony's main port city, and the nearby Breda Plantation, where he had been born and had once been enslaved. He was still working for Monsieur Bayon, and by now was also a certified practitioner of herbal medicine, roughly equivalent to a pharmacist today. He had even dipped his toes into the coffee business, renting a small property in the Highlands. He probably even owned or rented slaves. Toussaint was 48 years old, married with three sons. He had been a free man for nearly 20 years and in that time had become more prosperous than most black Haitians ever dared dream. Toussaint actually stood to lose a lot if the system fell apart. Getting to this position had required a lot of work and a lot of luck. Like almost everyone in Haiti, directly or indirectly, his wealth came from slavery. However, many historians believe that at this point in his life, Toussaint was working to help organize, and possibly even direct, the coming slave rebellion. It's very hard to say anything definitive on this topic. Any such work would have been carried out in total secrecy, for obvious reasons. There is some compelling circumstantial evidence. Most importantly, nothing else can really explain Toussaint's rapid rise from apparently not being involved with the rebellion at all to being its paramount leader in a very short time. Even for a man of his considerable talent and charisma, it's hard to believe the insurgents would let an outsider simply walk in and take control of the cause. Personally, I find it quite logical that people organizing a slave rebellion would seek out Toussaint and solicit his help. To win a war, you have to know your enemy. By virtue of his work with Bayon, Toussaint was one of the only black people in Haiti with an insider's view of the colonial elite, and, as a former slave, they could probably rely on his sympathy and discretion. 
Toussaint's perspective would have been invaluable. It's even possible that Toussaint was already recognized as some kind of leader, with the understanding that his role would have to be kept under wraps for the violent, chaotic early stages of the rebellion. If they were to succeed, the rebels would have to walk a political tightrope between the various other Haitian political factions, between other revolutionary factions in France, and between France and the other colonial powers. Under these conditions, it would be very wise to keep the true leader secret so that he would have the flexibility to play more than one side and be a figurehead who was untainted by the violent outbreak of the rebellion. Some historians of the Haitian Revolution believe the early pronouncements from the rebel leaders, which are all anonymous, were actually written by Toussaint. There do seem to be some similarities between his later writing and speeches and these communiques, but of course there are many possible explanations for such similarities, including simple coincidence. So at this stage, Toussaint was advising the rebel leaders, or had assumed some kind of leadership in the conspiracy and was biding his time in the shadows, or was pulling the strings but had not yet attempted to assert personal control, or was simply living his life, watching these events unfold from the sidelines, unaware that he would soon play an important part. All of these scenarios are possible, and unfortunately, I can't say for certain which is closer to the truth. On the night of August 14th, 1791, Several hundred black Haitians gathered in the wilderness outside Cap Francais, at a place called the Bois Caiman, for a very unusual political and religious ceremony. It started with an address by a holy man named Duddy Bukman. Bukman is sometimes described as a voodoo priest, but this would be an anachronism because Haitian voodoo would not really coalesce until long after his death. However you want to describe him, he delivered an electrifying speech, which a Haitian historian later tried to reconstruct from the memories of the participants. Quote, God, who makes the sun and gives us light, who rouses the waves and makes the storm, though hidden in the clouds, he watches us. He sees all the whites do. The God of the whites orders them to commit crimes but our God calls upon us to do good works. Our God, who is good to us, orders us to avenge our wrongs. He will direct our arms and aid us. Throw away the symbol of the God of the whites, who has so often caused us to weep, and listen to the voice of liberty which speaks in the hearts of all. End quote. Next, a holy woman named Cécile Fatiman addressed the crowd. She anointed Bukman, declaring him spiritual leader of the rebellion, then called for a black pig to be brought out and sacrificed. This ritual didn't come from either West Africa or France, but was actually an old tradition from the native Taino, which had been borrowed by the Maroons and become a part of their culture. The audience then lined up, and each person dipped their hand in the pig's blood and touched it to their forehead. This was tantamount to swearing an oath in Western culture. The principal leaders of the rebellion were now bound together, 
not only by common interest, but by sacred vow. I can't help but be reminded of a very different ceremony, undertaken by a very different group of people, only a few years earlier. They too were launching a rebellion, and their leaders swore, quote, We mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor, end quote. The context of the ceremony at the Bois Caiman was very different, but I think it's fair to say the sentiment was the same. Now that the rebels were spiritually and morally ready, the order went out. The Great Rebellion would begin in one week's time. The rebels said their goodbyes, hoping that they would meet again in freedom. It's hard to tell the story of the first phase of the Haitian Revolution as a single cohesive narrative. Events played out differently all over the colony. It's really more like hundreds of individual stories, which must have loomed very large in the memories of the participants, but are not well documented and are almost impossible to talk about in detail. We do know this. On August 21st, 1791, columns of smoke began to appear all over the fertile northern plain. Some of these were simply the consequences of the desperate fighting taking place at many of the northern plantations, but most had been set deliberately to serve as beacons, calling enslaved Haitians to arms. All over the colony, people got the message. Even many who had not been involved in the conspiracy quickly understood what was happening, recognized this as a chance for freedom and revenge, and picked up their machetes. In a sense, this was a moment of great exultation. Black Haitians were seizing their own destinies, freeing themselves from some of the worst conditions human beings have ever been forced to live in. However, we can't let this moment pass without pointing out the horrific violence which accompanied it. Given the sudden opportunity for revenge against their tormentors, many of the rebels punished any white colonist who fell into their hands. The history of the French Revolution has more than its share of bloody days, but few can compare with the outbreak of the Great Slave Rebellion in Haiti. This violence was not one-sided. As you can probably guess, the white colonists were absolutely merciless to any captured insurgent. However, for the first time in the history of the colony, the formerly enslaved blacks were dishing out more than they received. It's hard to strike the right note talking about these events. I'm certainly not going to condone torture, rape, and the slaughter of innocents. Even though these events prefigured the liberation of the colony and the freedom of half a million people, they were tragic and horrifying. It is uncomfortable, but probably also worth mentioning, that it was not the black slaves who had made murder, torture, and sexual violence common parts of colonial life. The white colonists had built a society on the foundation of barbarism, and now, they were learning how it felt to be on the receiving end of that kind of barbarism. In a certain sense, the rebels were simply following the template created by their former masters. The colonial power structure was remarkably slow to respond. 
Some of that was for reasons we've already discussed. Their internal divisions were both a distraction and a practical barrier to any kind of unified effort to organize a counterattack. For days, there was no plan, no coordinated effort to push back the insurgents and reassert the colonial order. I think there was also a psychological barrier at work here. Nobody wanted to entertain the possibility that the worst thing anyone could imagine, the one thing all of colonial society had been organized to prevent, had come to pass. For the white settlers, this was the apocalypse. Their short-sightedness had brought the very existence of the colony into question. But there was no ignoring something on this scale, not for long. Within a few days, the colony's main port, Cap Francais, looked like hell. Smoke blotted out the sun during the day, and distant fires lit up the horizon every night. Pieces of burnt sugarcane fell like rain. Out in the countryside, the revolt was spreading. The more success the rebels had, the more people joined, and the faster word spread. Soon, the disparate bands of insurgents began to coalesce, probably around the structure of the conspiracy which had originally launched the rebellion. Groups of liberated ex-slaves mingled with the Maroons, who already had experience waging guerrilla warfare against the colonial establishment. With time, these groups formed into guerrilla bands, and, in time, those guerrilla bands formed links among one another, and became something resembling armies. For enslaved Haitians, this was a time of exhilaration. They had taken a step towards destiny. That step had taken their whole community into tremendous danger. But they had taken it themselves, by their own free will, and were charting their own course. For many of them, they were experiencing freedom for the first time in their lives. The feeling must have been intoxicating, because they would fight like hell to defend it. I think we'll leave things there for now. Next time, we'll continue the story of the Haitian Revolution, and see Toussaint Breda become Toussaint Louverture, and assume the mantle of Father of His Country. Until then, thanks for listening. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesse from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com.
www.thepowerofpositivity.com.